The following audio is from Missio Day Church in Asheville, North Carolina. We exist for maturing and multiplying disciples in Asheville and beyond for the glory of God. For more resources from Missio Day or to partner with us on mission, visit mdcavl.org. Really, really thankful that you are with us this morning. If this is your first time here uh, or watching online, my name is Brian. I'm the lead pastor here, and uh, I'm really, really grateful that you would join us this morning, give up uh, an hour of your time or so to be with us. And we got a great day today. We've got, uh, we're, we're welcoming some new covenant members in just a minute here this morning, and we're baptizing, I think, six people uh, after service. So that's, that's pretty good, right? Yeah. Praise God for that. Okay. Uh, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 2, please. Acts chapter 2. Uh, as you know, we are studying through the book of Acts. We're only two weeks in. Uh, I guess this is our third week. The book of Acts is often called the Acts of the Apostles. Uh, really, as I told you last week or the week before, it should be called the Acts of Jesus through his people, by his spirit, with his word, on his mission for his glory. But that doesn't exactly roll off the tongue, right? So we call it the book of Acts. Let me catch you up if you haven't been with us. Jesus is God in the flesh. He lives without sin. He dies in our place for our sins. He is buried. Three days later, he rises again, conquering death, Satan, sin, and hell for us. He appeared over a period of more than 40 days uh, to more than 500 witnesses, demonstrating that he is alive and well, that, that, that death could not conquer him, that he had conquered death and sin. And he was teaching about the kingdom of God. And then he goes to ascend back into heaven. But before he does that, he gives a mission to his disciples. We looked at that in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when he says, you will be my witnesses here in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. But this mission is impossible without a power that comes from outside of them. Now, how many of you know it's a terrible thing to be without power? It's a terrible thing to be without power. Uh, my oldest is 14, but when he was a baby, he might have been a year old. Uh, there was a, a pretty big storm, a winter storm that came into our area, and the temperatures plunged into like the single digits. And I can't remember if, our, if we actually lost electricity or not. I think we did, but when it came back on, all we had was a heat pump in the house. And the heat pump did not have enough power to keep up with the cold from outside, and so our house was getting colder and colder and colder, and I think we were down into the 50s inside the house with a baby, and so we, we went and got a hotel room because we were like, this is, we need heat in this house, right? It's a terrible thing to be without power. It's a terrible thing for a person to be without power. Right? Some of you, you're, you're, you have family members that are making really stupid decisions, and you feel powerless to affect any change on them at all. We have friends and family members and coworkers who are lost as last year's Easter egg, and, and we want desperately for them to come to know the love of the Lord Jesus, but we feel powerless to, to bring them to Christ or to, to say anything that would have any effect on them. It's a terrible thing for a person to be without power. It's a terrible thing for a church to be without power. Uh, A.W. Tozer was kind of, if you're familiar with John Piper, uh, A.W. Tozer was kind of the John Piper of like my grandparents' generation, okay? And, and Tozer said this one time. He said, if the Holy Spirit was removed from our churches today, and this was like in the 50s, he said, if the Holy Spirit was removed from our churches today, 95% of what we do would continue to go on and no one would know the difference. 
But if the Holy Spirit was removed from, our, from the church uh, in the first century, 95% of what they do would stop and everyone would know the difference. Okay? It's a terrible thing for a church to be without power. And so as Jesus commissions his disciples, he doesn't just say, hey, go, do it. He says, you got to wait. you got to wait for the Holy Spirit. you got to wait for power to come. And today, we're going to look at what, what it looks like uh, when this power comes. So i got 21 verses to cover today. I think I can do it quickly, but you guys got to buckle up because we got a lot to cover. Let me read them, uh, and then I'll pray, and we'll jump in here, okay? And by the way, if you're new to Missio, we usually read the entire passage before we preach it. A mentor of mine years ago said, if you read the whole passage and then you screw up the sermon, people still heard the word of God. Amen? That's the sermon. Everything else is commentary. All right? So join with me. Acts chapter 2. I'll start in verse 1. Just follow along as I read. It's also on the screens if you uh, don't have your Bible with you. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues or languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, I feel like Bob Costas at the Olympics, Egypt, the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they're filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. It's only 9 a.m. Get out of here. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and all your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. God. Let's pray. Uh, God, we are grateful to be able to gather today in your presence uh, with your word before us and in your spirit in us and with us. And Lord, we pray today uh, that you would give us the blessing of hearing from you through your word, of experiencing the presence and the power of your spirit among us. And we're grateful to be able to celebrate both these new covenant members and the, the baptism, the testimony of new life in Christ. And so help us today to hear clearly. Help me to preach clearly. Holy Spirit, we need you to help us 
understand, take in, and apply the word of God to us. We need this. And so we ask for your help in the beautiful name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. Amen. All right. Now, if you're a note taker, I got three points for you. The first one is this, an unprecedented experience. Uh, As we look at verses one through four, the disciples are just waiting, right? Jesus told them to go back to Jerusalem and wait, but they didn't know what to expect and they didn't know when to expect it because Jesus did not tell them how long it was going to be, right? He just says, go and wait. So as we saw last week, they go back and they are praying. They're all together praying and they're worshiping. And 10 days go by. Now that'd be hard for doers like me, wouldn't it? Like if you're an action-oriented person and Jesus says, hey, wait for the power of the spirit, but then go make disciples. You're like, all right, so it'll come like in 48 hours, right? And then we'll get on with this mission. And a day goes by and two days go by and three and four and five. And then it hits a week mark and you're like, <clears throat> is this thing on? Like, what's going on? Are we, when are we getting this power? And they're just waiting. And then the day of Pentecost comes. Now, the day of Pentecost is not a Pentecostal or a, or a, a Christian thing. It's a Jewish holy day. The day of Pentecost was also known as the Feast of Weeks. Uh, it was seven weeks, seven times seven plus one, or 50 days after the Passover. So Pentecost, if you think of the Pentagon, has five sides, uh, or the Pentateuch, the first five books of our Bible, uh, it's five. So 50 days after the Passover was this Feast of Weeks. It was the wheat harvest where they would celebrate the first fruits of the wheat. And um, this was one of those three festivals where God commanded all of his people to come back and to celebrate in Jerusalem. Now, during the period between the the conclusion of the Old Testament and our New Testament, the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost also was associated with the time when Moses received the Ten Commandments or the law from God. So that first Passover, which by the way, if you're not familiar with Passover, Passover was a celebration, a remembrance of when, G- when God rescued his people from slavery and oppression in Egypt by the blood of a sacrificial lamb. They painted the doorposts of their homes with the blood of that lamb and anyone who was marked by the blood of the lamb was saved and God's judgment fell on everyone else, which is all foreshadowing Jesus, right? Our our, our true lamb who takes away the sins of the world, who was sacrificed for us on the Passover so that anyone who surrenders himself to Jesus and is marked by the blood of Jesus uh, is saved and free from the judgment of sin and, and hell, right? So, so the Passover happens. 50 days later, we have this time of the Feast of Weeks. And it was after that first Passover that they say that Moses went up on Mount Sinai and received the law of God. And so they started to celebrate that as well. So, so here's what's going on. They're all together. Maybe they're in the upper room. I don't know if it would hold 120, but all of the uh, disciples are together. And then all of a sudden, the text tells us there was this noise, right? It says, uh, suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as of fire uh, uh, appeared to them and rested on each one of them. In our modern parlance, we would say it sounded like a freight train, right? That's what people say when, when the, a tornado or a hurricane comes. So it sounded like a freight train. Now, they obviously didn't have freight trains then, so they just said, a violent wind. Like it sounded really, really loud. Now, it wasn't wind. The text says it was like wind, but it's not like they were being blown away in the room, okay? And then they see, so they hear this noise. They see what looks like fire, but it isn't fire. And it splits across, and it, and it kind of rests on each one of them. What is going on here? 
Friends, this is just what happens when God comes into the room. Think about this. Um, Isaiah 6, right? The vision that Isaiah has of the Lord enthroned. And the, the pillars are shaking, right? And, and there's this smoke and fire and wind and all this stuff because God's presence is filling the temple. Think about Mount Sinai. Here we are, uh, Exodus chapter 19 and 20. Moses goes up to meet with God on the mountain. God comes down. He descends from heaven onto Mount Sinai. And how does he come? Smoke and thunder and lightning and fire, right? And wind. And you could go through the Bible, through the Old Testament. You'll see over and over and over again that every time God came down, he came down in power and in glory, in wind and fire. When when he comes down and consecrates the temple, there's fire and wind, right? This is just what God does. Now here, God is coming and descending again, but instead of giving the law, because he's already given it, he gives the Spirit, gives the Holy Spirit. Now, I had not really noticed this before, but if you look again at the passage, when it says that divided tongues as a fire appeared and rested on each one of them, this is really interesting, right? Because God's coming down as like fire, but then he multiplies, the, the, he multiplies and, and rests on each one of them. So in the Old Testament, um, God's spirit would come and rest on an individual for a season and then depart. Rest on an individual and then depart. But now we're in a new epoch of history where God's spirit comes down and multiplies, so to speak. It's still one spirit, right? But he rests on each individual person so that every single follower of Jesus, every single person who's surrendered their lives to Christ becomes a temple of God's Holy Spirit individually. And then collectively, we are a temple of the Spirit. He's building this house together. But the Spirit rests on each one of them individually. Everyone is empowered with the Spirit now. So the Bible says that everyone who surrenders to Jesus is brought into union with Christ and sealed with the Holy Spirit or baptized in the Spirit. But the Bible also talks about being filled with the Spirit, which is a a repeated act. Uh, We need to be filled over and over again. Uh, Billy Graham used to say we're leaky, right? So we need to get filled with the Spirit again and again, which is just his empowerment for mission. So these disciples, they are already sealed with the Spirit. They are already converted believers in Jesus, but now we see them being filled with God's Spirit for the first time and empowered for God's mission, which is what happens. Look at the text again. The Holy Spirit uh, fills each of them, verse 4, and what do they begin to do immediately? To speak. Now you say, well, they're speaking in other languages. Yes, they are, but for what purpose? Verse 11 will tell us to talk about God, to share the mighty works of God. So, So they are empowered by the Spirit for mission, to tell about God. That's why he gives them the Spirit like this. In other words, it's like God saying, hey, it's harvest time, right? Remember, this the Feast of Weeks is the, is the Feast of the Harvest. It's harvest time, except we're harvesting souls now. We're going to tell people about Jesus. And, and as Jesus said, the fields are white unto harvest. So he's empowering his people with his spirit that they might testify to the mighty works of God so that other people might come and believe in him and know him. One of the primary purposes, not the only purpose, but one of the primary purposes of the Holy Spirit in our lives is to turn us out of the cul-de-sac of self and to get us on mission for God. 
Think about these disciples. Um, Before the Spirit falls, are they not primarily consumed with themselves? With self-aggrandizement, with uh, self-protection? I mean, you think about uh, the the two who were like, hey, Jesus, can we sit on your right and your left in the kingdom? Right? We want to be first. You think about Peter, who who said at first, you know, I'll never leave you, Jesus. I'll die with you. And then hours later... (laughs) He runs away, and he pretends like he never knew Jesus. All of the other disciples scattering and abandoning Jesus, right? They were, they were about self-protection. Uh, they, were, they were about themselves. But now when the Spirit comes, they are suddenly stopping thinking about themselves, and they are on mission with Jesus, and most of them are going to give their lives for the sake of the gospel. Now, if you have surrendered your life to the Lordship of Christ, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead, the same spirit that fell from heaven at Pentecost and rested in these believers is alive in you as well. And I wonder if you actually believe that. I wonder if you really believe that that is true. So for instance, If you feel powerless, you're a follower of Jesus, but you feel powerless. Now, we said a couple weeks ago, one of the reasons that we feel powerless often is because we're not asking for the Spirit and we're not expecting the Spirit, right? But I think another reason why we don't experience the power of God's Spirit in us is that we're not living lives that require His power to show up. We're not living on mission. We're not living in a way that requires the power of God's Spirit to show up and help us to accomplish anything. We live very quiet, very safe, very simple lives that are manageable by us and require nothing of the Spirit. An atheist could live the life that we live, and quite well. But the, the Spirit has come to help us be witnesses, to be witnesses at home to raise our kids to know and love Jesus, right? That's our first and primary mission field if we're parents. So raise our kids to know and love the Lord Jesus, to be witnesses at, in our workplace. Now listen, when I say witnesses, I don't mean beating people over the head and sharing tracts with them all the time and just constantly annoying them about Jesus, okay? What I mean is being sensitive to what God's doing, what his spirit is, is prompting us to, loving, serving, blessing, and yes, speaking the truth to people who are in our spheres of influence to be witnesses in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, uh, in our families, with our friends, um, uh, in the places of recreation that we enjoy. To see needs around us the way Jesus would see them. To feel compassion for people the way Jesus felt compassion for people. To to be motivated to, to take action to meet those needs in the name of Jesus the way that Jesus did. That's why Peter tells us to always be ready to give an account for the hope that we have because he expects that we're going to live lives that are intriguing to people and they will ask us and then it gives us the opportunity to speak to them about Jesus. So here's this unprecedented experience where God's spirit comes and rests on all of them and empowers them for mission. We're gonna see a little bit more about that uh, in a second. You guys with me so far? Okay, now look at verse five. We're gonna look at this, this next point which... I've titled an unimaginable expression. Verse 5. 
Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the sound of that mighty rushing wind, the multitude came together. And they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in his own language? And then they go on and describe 15 different uh, ethnicities or nationalities that are present here in the room, which is not every nation, but it's this idea of, you know, they're all, all these nations are sort of represented. In verse 12, it says, they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? An unimaginable expression. So all 120 are filled with the Holy Spirit of God. They started speaking in other known languages, okay? Uh, not jibber-jabber, okay? Some, sometimes people want to equate this with, with Paul's gift of tongues in 1 Corinthians 14. I, I think they're separate. This is known languages that other people could hear and know, oh, that's, that's Arabic. That's my native tongue, right? This is different. Okay, if you want to know, I don't have time to talk about 1 Corinthians 14. If you want to know about that, I preached on it, I think 10 or 11 years ago. You can go on the website and look at the 1 Corinthians series. And it's, I still probably hold the same positions today. <clears throat> But at the sound of this noise, remember, this is first century, right? So it's a big city. There's a lot of people there. There's a lot of hustle and bustle, but they don't have airplanes or subways or other noise-making things in the city. So when you hear a tornado, right, this, and you hear, start to hear people speaking another language, it's going to draw a crowd, right? So they all gather together, and they're going, what is, what's going on here? Now, I love this. It just so happens that there were devout Jews from all these other nations who happened to be in Jerusalem at this time when the Spirit falls at Pentecost. And, they, and, they're, and they're asking to themselves, what does this mean? How are we able to hear them talk about God in our own language? I mean, after all, aren't these mostly Galileans? Which is a dig, right? Because the Galileans were not known as being very well-educated, they were not known, um, they, they were known for having a pretty thick sort of country accent. Uh, one commentator said they were known for swallowing syllables, which if you don't know what that means, um, it's like around here when people, instead of saying oil, say oh. They swallowed a syllable, right? Some of you are like, uh-oh, <laughs> I swallow a lot of syllables. Um, so they had this sort of draw, they had this sort of, right? And they were not looked of well. It would be like, Rutherford County rednecks all of a sudden being able to speak perfect Italian or Arabic without any flaw, like Rosetta Stone level, without ever training for it. And you're like, Earl, how in the world did you, right? <laughs> That's what's happening. Now, let's be honest for a second. When Jesus gives his mission, you will be my witnesses in all Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. There are some practical roadblocks to that mission, aren't there? Like for one thing, okay, here's this ragtag group of about 12 uh, plus, you know, the other 100 and uh, whatever it is. They, they're together, but the 12 are the leaders, and they're mostly Galileans. Um, how are they going to get to all the nations of the world? You know, like it doesn't occur to us that this was a big problem because we have cars and airplanes and you know, all that kind of stuff. And we have internet and we have Google Translate. And so you don't need to know another language. You just talk to your phone and then it speaks back to someone in another language, 
right? We have all that stuff now, but think about this. In the first century, let's just say Asheville was Jerusalem and you needed to go to Charlotte. It'd take you about a week to get there on a donkey. And then about another week to get to Charleston where the boats are, and that boat's only going to go about six miles an hour. It's going to take you a while. Like, how are we going to accomplish this mission? Oh, and then by the way, once we get there, how are we going to know these other languages so that we can tell people about Jesus? Well, what if God said, hey, how about I just bring the nations to you and then supernaturally empower you to proclaim the works of God to them in their own language? And you're like, that works. I like that idea, right? And when you see this happen. We'll see it throughout the book of Acts that when the Spirit comes, people start to proclaim the works of God in other known languages so that the message of the gospel goes out. So here's what's happening. These people... Uh, are hearing the works of God in their own language. It's so beautiful. It's like, it's like Acts 1.8 is already starting to gain momentum, and these folks haven't even left the upper room yet. <laughs> right? They're still they're sitting there. When the Spirit falls, they start speaking the works of God in these other languages, and now it's drawn a crowd, and as we'll see next week, Peter's going to get up and preach the gospel to them, and thousands will be saved. And those who are reached with the gospel because they're coming in from other parts of the known world, they're going to go back with the gospel as missionaries to the other parts of the world. It's been pointed out, and I think this is really beautiful, that what's happening here is, is almost a, a reversal or a rewriting of the Tower of Babel. You know that story from Genesis chapter 11. So if you don't know this, for the first 10 chapters of the Bible, everybody pretty much spoke the same language, okay? Then we get to chapter 11, and the people start going, you know what? We don't need God. We don't need God's authority. We don't need God's kingdom. We can build our own kingdom. We can make a name for ourselves. So they are unified in language, but they're also unified in their disregard for their creator, and they start to build this tower up to heaven. And they say, we'll make a name for ourselves and we'll reach up to heaven and we'll be like God. And God, in his severe mercy, comes down with cursing. And, and he confuses the languages. He, he creates other languages so that they can't understand one another. And the people are scattered all throughout the earth. Now the people who've been scattered throughout the earth have come to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem's on the top of a, of a mountain, so they're coming up to Jerusalem. And God descends. He comes down. But this time, instead of cursing, he brings blessing. And all these people in all these different languages are getting to hear testimony about God, like the mighty works of God, in their own languages. And next week, when we see Peter get up and preach his sermon... He preaches in one language to all these people and they hear the gospel and 3,000 people are saved. And then those people go back on mission in their different languages with one message, the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's incredible. God is rewriting the story. Now, Acts 17, Paul tells us that God has determined the times and the places in which we will live so that, so that we will feel our way towards him, though he's not far from any one of us. These people thought they were coming to Jerusalem 
to celebrate Pentecost. What they didn't know was God brought them to Jerusalem to learn about Jesus. And the same thing is true today, right? We are commanded to go. We are commanded to go into every, uh, across seas and across, across streets, into every network and every neighborhood with the gospel, right? But God is also bringing people here. He's bringing people from all over the world, from all over the country to Asheville. And they think they're coming for the climate or for, uh, certainly not for the great housing market. Um, they think they're coming for recreation or for the outdoors or for the beer culture or art culture, or whatever. They think that's why they're coming here. But God has brought them here so that they might meet Jesus. That, that needed an amen right there. They, God's bringing them here so that they can meet, about, meet Jesus. And he's going to use us, empowered by his spirit, to proclaim Jesus to them. And he's going to, because this is what God does, he is in the business of rewriting the stories of people who have spent their whole lives rebelling against him. So an unimaginable expression, the spirit falling, people proclaiming the goodness of God, the testimony of, of the mighty works of God in all these different languages so that people can understand and be attracted so that they're ready to hear the gospel. And we'll see that next week. But now, last, last little thing here. I've, I, I call this an unflappable explanation, and I'll, I'll tell you why in a second. An unflappable explanation. Uh, in verse 14, Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. So he's saying, hey, listen up. I got something really important to say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be, declares the Lord, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream, dream, dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, signs on the earth below, blood, fire, vapor, smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the day the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So some people in the crowd are seeing what's happening, and they accuse these disciples of being drunk, which is the stupidest thing in the world, because when have you ever seen drinking make people talk better? But he, and I love that Peter's response is not, well, good Christian people don't drink. He goes, it's 9 a.m. We haven't had time yet, okay? <clears throat> He's like, even the drunks aren't even drinking, right? It's, it, now, of course, drunkenness is a sin. I'm not advocating for that. But his point is, like, it's too early for that. This is not what's going on. And by the way, that's a dumb accusation, right? What this shows us is that some people refuse to take seriously what God is doing right in front of them. Like last week we saw this. Jesus appeared to more than 500, but how many disciples were in that upper room? That'd be 120, remember? 
They're still there, by the way. Uh, there's 120 of them. So clearly, seeing is not always believing. That's what we said last week, right? Jesus appeared to a bunch, but not all believed. Well, now they are witnessing the miracle of tongues, of other languages being spoken, hearing the testimony of God in their own language. These people did not study it. They don't have Rosetta Stone. They have no way of knowing this language, and, and they're making fun of it. They are refusing to They're so hardened that they refuse to believe. Listen, the Bible says, if you hear the voice of the Lord, do not harden your heart. And I'm inclined to believe that there may be some of you today who are in this room or, or are watching online and you are hardened right now and you are hearing me preach and you're thinking, what an idiot that he believes that other people were able to speak in all these different languages and stuff. And what I'm saying to you is, stop rejecting God. Right now, stop hardening your heart, surrender your life to him Repent of your sin and let him save you. Because you can keep fighting and you can keep making fun all you want. And one day you're going to end up separated from God for all of eternity. And you will be weeping for all of eternity. Turn now. So Peter, he gives this explanation, right? We'll look at his full sermon next week and it is amazing. And it only takes like three and a half minutes and 3,000 people get saved, <laughs> which is like far more than any preacher has ever done since, right? We preach like 3,000 sermons and three people get saved. So today I just want to look at this introduction and I want you to see how bold Peter is. That's why I call it an unflappable explanation because Peter's a coward, right? Peter's the guy who said, I'll never, I'll never you know, I'll die with you, Lord. I will never stop being by your side. And then he denies knowing Jesus and he runs away. He's a coward for most of his life. He's, he's never, he never hesitates to speak, but he often puts his foot in his mouth. But now that the spirit has come, he stands up and he's bold. He stands up before all these people and he doesn't care what happens to him. He's going to tell them the truth. And he recalls from memory, because remember, they didn't have a Bible in front of them. They didn't have the scroll. He recalls from memory five verses from the book of Joel, like we would. <laughs> and, he, and he says, let me explain this to you. Now, interestingly, uh, Joel would have been on the minds of these people because the book of Joel was read during the Feast of Weeks. And so Peter gets up and he says, listen, let me tell you what's going on. These are the last days that Joel talked about. Since Jesus has ascended until Jesus returns, every one of those days is the last days. And what you're seeing is not craziness. It is a fulfillment of Joel's prophecy that the spirit is poured out on all flesh. All those who belong to God, the spirit is empowering them. Now, there were some in this camp at the time who believed, uh, you know, because through the Old Testament, the people of God would have a prophet or two here or there, right? We have a collection of prophets. We have the major prophets and the minor prophets, but there aren't a lot of them. And people started to believe that after Malachi, until New Testament times, that, that, that there were no more prophets. The prophets had, God was not using prophets any longer. They were not, there were no spokesmen for God after that. And what Peter's saying is, well, kind of, but, but it's not that there's no prophets. It's that there, aren't, there weren't any till now, and now all of them are. A prophet had two main responsibilities in the Old Testament. One was to walk intimately with God. The other was to speak faithfully for God. And what happens when the Spirit falls on these 120? They know God, and they start to speak for God. 
And so what Peter's getting at is everyone who belongs to Jesus is now commissioned as a prophet in a way to know God intimately. We have the ability. I mean, do you, do you get your arms and mind around this? We have the ability to know God intimately, every one of us. Because the curtain has been torn. We have access to the Holy of Holies. We have access into the very presence of God because of Jesus. We have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us. We can know God intimately. And not only that, we have his words that we can, we can speak faithfully. So all of us are commissioned. Now, Joel's prophecy is not fully fulfilled. You, you saw him talk about, you know, the blood, uh, the, the moon being darkened and blood and all that kind of stuff. And, and, and that isn't happening here. What he's getting at is this pro- the fulfillment of this prophecy is beginning. Like there's still, a, there's still, the day of the Lord is still coming. There is still a day in which Jesus will return and he will judge the living and the dead and he will make all things new. That day is still before us. But then he, he ends it like this. But for those who call upon the name of the Lord, they can be saved. They can be forgiven. They can be restored. And as I said, next week we're going to look in depth at the message of the gospel that Peter preaches. But I'll give you the gist of it. Jesus is God in the flesh. Second member of the Trinity. He came to the earth, took on human flesh. And, and he brought healing and forgiveness, and and he raised the dead, and he cast out demons, and he did all these miraculous works of God, uh, and he he fed thousands, and and he proclaimed the truth of God, like with, with authority no one had ever heard before. He was speaking of the kingdom of God, and he lived a perfect life, a holy life, a sinless life. Though he was tempted in every way that we are tempted to sin, he never sinned because he was our substitute in his humanity of perfect, he fulfilled all the laws of God perfectly for us because we never could. And he was put to death by the very people he came to save. He was put to death by the very people that he came to serve. And yet he died in our place and in their place as our substitute, taking all of our sin, all of our rebellion against God, all of our self-sufficiency and self-protection and self-aggrandizement. He took on himself and he bore the wrath of God in our place as our substitute for our sins. And he really died and he was really buried. And three days later, he really rose from the grave, conquering our enemies of Satan, sin, death, and hell. And he appeared to people for a period of 40 days, teaching about the kingdom of God. And he ascended back into heaven. And one day he will come again. And he will judge the world. And he will make all things new. So hear me very clearly. There will be a day, brothers and sisters, there will be a day when all of us stand before God. And we will either experience judgment for our sin and rebellion, or we will experience mercy because Jesus took judgment for us. So that's the gist of next week's sermon. (laughs) And that's the gist of Peter's sermon. And I got one last thing to show you. In verse 37, so I'm going to skip ahead here. This is what happens after he preaches that sermon. This is what they say. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And here's what Peter said to them. Repent. That means to turn away from sin, to turn away from self, and to turn to Jesus. 
to turn away from my sin and to turn to Jesus. Repent and what? Be baptized. So first thing, repent. Second thing, be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And third, you will receive what? The gift of the Holy Spirit. So listen, I don't know if there's anyone in this room who has never trusted in Jesus or repented of their sin, but I want to invite you today to repent and to trust in Jesus, to turn away from yourself, to turn away from your sin, and to turn to Jesus and to trust in him alone for salvation. We call that conversion, right? Becoming a Christian. You can do it even in your seat just by saying, God, I'm a sinner. You are a savior. You sent Jesus to pay for my sins. I want to turn away from my sin and trust in you. Will you save me? Right? You could be baptized today. Some of you, maybe you're a brand new believer. Maybe you just never have taken that step of baptism. And guess what? We got a tank full of water out there. We're going to baptize six. How about 10? Okay? Let's just do I got extra clothes for you if you want to be baptized. I really do. I promise you, I really do. Uh, today's the day. If you've never taken that step and you feel compelled by the Spirit of God that, you know what, I need to publicly proclaim my faith in Jesus by being baptized, I would love to do that for you today. You can talk to me as the music is playing. I'll be standing in the back somewhere. Come talk to me and say, yep, I want to be baptized. And I'll see, like, what's your size? And we got your clothes, and we'll, we'll, we'll get it done, okay? And you will receive the Spirit. Now, I'm not saying you don't have the Spirit now, but, but for some of you, maybe you don't. So I, I want to invite you to respond to Jesus. For the rest of us, here, here's what I want to do just for a couple minutes. And band, you guys can come back up as we close this thing out. I want you to just take a couple minutes and pray. Pray for yourself. Pray for your church family. Here's what I want you to pray. Pray that we would experience the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. That we'd ask the Holy Spirit to fill us and empower us for the mission that he's called us to. Pray that we would live in such a way that requires the power of God's Spirit to show up. Pray that God would use us to bear witness to Jesus so that he would rewrite the stories of people in our city who have walked in rebellion to him for their whole lives. So you pray and I'll pray. Band, you can come back up. Father, I thank you for this time together. I pray, Lord, now that you would move by your spirit in this place. Uh, if there's any who are not believers in Jesus, followers of Jesus, that right now you would lead them to repentance and faith by your spirit, that you would awaken their souls and allow them to pray to you of, of their own volition, uh, a prayer of repentance, turning from sin and turning to you, asking you to save them and that you would be gracious and do that for them. For others who need to take the step of baptism, uh, Lord, perhaps there's some in the room who want to take that step and we we ask you to, to just bring that conviction upon them. Uh, it, sh it should be a joyful thing, not a shameful thing. And if not, that's cool. But if there's someone who wants to set forward in baptism, uh, Lord, make that clear. I pray that just in, this, in these few moments together that we would uh, plead with you to do what only you can do in and through our lives for your glory and for the good of others. We pray this in the name of Jesus, by the power of the Spirit.